If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. You're listening to Green Dreamer, a listener-supported podcast, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. As we embark on a new year for the show, we would love to invite you to join our Patreon community, where we'll begin to share bonus episode offerings, some of my own reflections on these conversations, and more. If you've been with us for a while, you also know that we often explore ideas and perspectives that go against mainstream currents in order to seed more imaginative thinking for what could be. So if you value our platform and curiosities and intention and want to support us to break through the noise of mainstream media, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. And at its heart is this huge paradox that everything that this system attempts to know, it destroys. Everything it attempts to categorize in this way, it actually it kills because the truth of the world is relationships. The truth of the world is, is an ecology of things in, in conversation and relationship. And when you attempt to study any of them in isolation, you lose everything that makes it meaningful or, in fact, living. Today, we're speaking with James Bridal, a writer, author, and technologist. Their artworks have been commissioned by galleries and institutions and exhibited worldwide and on the internet. Their writing on literature, culture, and networks has appeared in magazines and newspapers, including Wired, The Atlantic, The New Statesman, The Guardian, and The Financial Times. They are the author of New Dark Age and Ways of Being, and they wrote and presented New Ways of Seeing for BBC Radio 4 in 2019. As technologies become more complex, they just generally become harder to understand. It's really impossible for for anyone to any single person to hold like as an example the whole of the internet in one's head. Right? There's just too many connections, too much of it there, uh, and that's true of so much of of contemporary life. We live within systems of such complexity that so much of that is 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 unknown to us, and those systems have been extended up to and in some cases kind of past breaking point. I think both for kind of systems of living and for like our cognitive ability to understand them, and that's partly just a result of increased complexity. It's 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 a result of living at this planetary scale as so many of us do. We, we live within a, a consumer 
society that wants to provide us with all of these things. And I, I think a lot of that is is really the kind of unconscious result of like living within such complexity. But there's the kind of levels of it. So there's 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 an unconscious just kind of accumulation of stuff that we all live with inside. And then there's the kind of conscious but well meaning decisions, which I think is is kind of a big chunk of this. And you know, as an example, just think about like the computer systems that you use every day. They are designed to make your interactions with those systems as simple as possible, as friction-free as possible. And they're doing that in order to make your experience as easy and simple as possible. In order to do that, they have to hide a lot of the complexity of what's happening, right? And that just means at the basic level, like there's some really complicated code underneath the hood of something like ordering from ordering online shopping, right? There's huge amounts of work that's gone into making that easy. And from a very simple perspective, that work has been done to make your life easier, right? Of course, side effect is there's lots of money in doing it. So there's a huge financial incentive in doing that. And because of the capitalist systems that we live within, most of that, the costs of that are external, right? So it has the effect of driving down prices. So labor is paid less in all kinds of places, both the people who make the goods, people who work within like kind of distribution centers, if we're going on with the kind of online shopping analogy, but also like huge amounts of computation that's happening. Computers getting hot in very distant places, huge data centers filled with machines getting hot as you do all this work, consuming huge amounts of energy that you don't see. And the, the delivery costs, the whatever it is, the gases coming out of the trucks, bringing you that stuff, all these things are externalities. All these things are like the extra costs around everything that we do. And the effect of most contemporary technologies is to hide those things away. And that's how we've designed the world. And it's made us, it's made us incredibly lacking in awareness of the systems that we find ourselves in. Sometimes that's done deliberately. Most of the time it's done kind of thoughtlessly, at least by the people who do it, uh, though it is kind of built into capitalist systems. Mm. But the, the, I think there's a couple of really important extra points. The first of which is that technology doesn't, doesn't have to do that. That's not the only way it can operate. One of the extraordinary things about technology in general, and, and I think the internet in particular, though, again, it doesn't often do this, is that it makes those things clear if you want to go looking for them, right? The code to run things is there, right? We used to operate in systems where, where you had far less access, actually, to information about how the world worked if you actually tried to go out and get it. So if you are interested, if you are curious, you really can go and find out how stuff works. And the second thing is the, I think people are more aware than we like to think of this system, of this kind of the way in which so much of the world is is hidden from us. We're not always consciously aware of it again, but we're psychically aware of it. And that really, for me, leads to a lot of the uncertainty and deep-seated fear that shades into kind of anger and conflict that we experience really is the kind of dominant tenor of the world today. We know that we lack a real understanding of the world around us, of the forces that shape our lives. And we're not so stupid that we're, we're completely unaware of that system, but we so have so little access to it that it's doing this kind of deep psychic damage to us, just as it's doing like real physical damage to everything else that lives on this planet. 
Yeah. And in addition to these technologies often being designed to make the experience simpler for people, there's also the reality just that the world and all of its vast complexities are kind of unframable in totality by computed language. Also, because we can only really compute things we understand. And while we're coming to see that there's still so much we've yet to understand about ourselves and the world. So there's certainly a lot of limitations there as well. And something that I've been thinking about is as I see more and more people using various smart technologies, like, for example, watches that are constantly monitoring people's heart rates or nutrition tracking apps or social media or GPS technologies and so on, there's this difficult yes and realization in my view that, yes, while in so many situations and for so many people, these apps really make our lives easier. They possibly save lives sometimes. And especially for people who are differently abled, they can really help to improve quality of life and so on. I can't help but think about how, in a way, they also kind of dull our capacities to be attuned to and engaged with ourselves, our senses, with other people and their dynamic social cues and our world and all of their rich entanglements. Like, why aren't we being taught how to better listen to our complex bodies and their diverse needs, which cannot really be standardized by formulas? Or why do people increasingly not even have the time or capacity to slow down enough to be able to pick up on our various bodily signals or environmental signals and be more activated and engaged in those ways? So it's this thought that when we become too reliant on and trusting of these technologies, believing them to be more real than the world which they have attempted to capture and translate into computed language and standardized equations, we actually become less smart ourselves, less understanding of what our body symptoms and symptoms of our greater living landscapes mean, less able to navigate social dynamics and conflicts in the real world, which are always going to be a lot more complex than their limited representations online and so on. And your talk, Is Technology Making the World Harder to Understand?, really reminded me of these uneasy questions. So I'd be curious to hear you shine a light on this thought of technology possibly making us less attuned to ourselves and the world and sometimes even less intelligent in the decisions we make. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, your example of the, all the kind of self-tracking and quantification of the self, it used to be called, these kind of systems of, of constant kind of monitoring of almost everything that we do, they are really a kind of internalization of surveillance as mm. a for an attempt to kind of control control oneself in various ways that yeah i don't i do i do agree with you i think get in the way of a real kind of understanding of ourselves you know they they they're already designed to be essentially surveillance tools because no one's selling these things without the intention of getting various kind of useful data back which doesn't accrue to us right so as soon as you're using anything that's connected to the internet in any any way your part of whatever you're doing is providing benefit elsewhere so you're kind of selling the labor of your body in all these kind of ways. And you're also relying on someone else's interpretation of that information rather than your own, as you say, connection to your body or to the world. And I think quite quite crucially, all of this is based on the fundamental philosophical assumption that the world or the body is knowable in this way. Mm. This really emerges like long before this stuff was getting written down as computer code. Computer code is kind of the current perhaps final, perhaps not, iteration of this idea that is much more of a kind of 16th, 17th century enlightenment idea that gave birth to the scientific method, that gave birth to, to rational 
so-called thinking that you know the world is the world is kind of knowable that there are these singular truths that can be ascribed universally that apply to all bodies to all worlds and that can be can be monitored and particularly can be optimized in this way you know that's the that's the really great lies that some point if we could just only gather in enough data if we could just categorize everything if we could put every single piece of information into the right box we would gain this kind of totalizing worldview that would allow us to essentially to control the future by controlling kind of every aspect of our being and our awareness this is this has been the dream of pretty much every domain of dominant science uh, for several hundred years and it's it's led to this incredibly compartmentalized binary ones and zero world in which we currently find ourselves and at its heart is this huge paradox that everything that this system attempts to know, it destroys. Everything it attempts to categorize in this way, it actually it kills because the truth of the world is relationships. The truth of the world is, is an ecology of things in, in conversation and relationship. And when you attempt to study any of them in isolation, you lose everything that makes it meaningful or in fact living. You see this in the and the sciences, if you look at science like botany, which has you know, spent several hundred years chopping plants up into ever smaller and smaller pieces in the totally mistaken belief that you can understand the life of a being by looking at its component parts as though it is indeed a kind of a tiny machine that you can just unscrew all the little pieces and categorize each one of them rather than understanding it as a complete complex organism that exists within its environment, within its context, within its own history of individual relationships, just as just as people are. And so each of these, these little quantifications are, are just more attempts to fit aspects of ourselves into a generalized model that simply doesn't hold. It doesn't hold, but it also is based on this, this great fallacy that we are somehow separable from the world around us rather than being an integral part of it. That's super powerful. And there's certainly a lot of costs and impacts to the world being rendered simpler and simpler. And to take this further, from your book, New Dark Age, you write, We've been conditioned to believe that computers render the world clearer and more efficient, that they reduce complexity and facilitate better solutions to the problems that beset us, and that they expand our agency to address an ever-widening domain of experience. But what if this is not true at all? By reifying the concerns of the present in unquestionable architectures, computation freezes the problems of the immediate moment into abstract, intractable dilemmas, obsessing over the inherent limitations of a small class of mathematical and material conundrums, rather than the broader questions of a truly democratic and egalitarian society, end quote. This was really powerful, and I feel like I grasp what you're tr trying to speak to here, especially as I use it to apply to what we've explored on the show before, which is the grave limitations of, for example, reducing climate change into simplified equations of carbon emissions and sequestration. But either with that or with some other examples we could better relate to, I wonder if you could clarify and elaborate on this observation that computers do not necessarily facilitate better solutions to the problems that beset us. Oh, yeah. I mean, computers don't don't create any solutions at all. Uh, they simply <laughs> render the problem in like a, in a, a, a different way of thinking about it, perhaps. And sometimes those mm. can be super useful. You know, they're very good at thinking about certain classes of problems. And in fact, in many ways, computers are better at, at addressing, at framing, and sometimes at solving certain classes of problems than humans are. Mostly mathematical problems, mostly problems of 
problems that are complex in certain classifiable ways. You know, there's lots of everyday things we have to solve, like what's the safe weight to put on a bridge made out of such and such a material. Engineers are very good at that, but you take it up to a certain level, you want some computers involved, they're very good at these things. That's wonderful, that's brilliant. But the thing is, we've been building computers for uh, whatever it is, 80, 70, 80 years now. And um, when they arrived, they were so amazing and they remain so amazing in so many ways. And we're so easily impressed by shiny things that we assumed that computers were good at solving all the problems. We looked at this incredibly powerful machine that was capable of doing things that not only no machine had been capable of doing before, but also was capable of solving a whole bunch of really tricky problems that that obsessed us and that particularly obsessed a certain class of people, those in power, that were particularly good at making money within certain systems that we built, that were accompanied by a kind of priesthood class who looked really impressive and told us how impressive these machines were. That we basically thought that these were all powerful machines. That's the the mental image we have of them. And we're sent and, you know, a, a certain way of thinking came about that I, I really, really notice really intensely in the present particularly amongst the that priesthood class and the power uh, you know of which the you know the the financially powerful this you, know, if you include kind of managerial politicians you include kind of people high up in all kinds of industry you include particularly financial people who work with stock markets these people all believe that the world is essentially mechanistic or computational in this way and as such that the computer is a kind of model of the world right and so that the computer is capable of modeling any aspect of the world and i think a lot of environmentalists at least also you know when we get into kind of forecasting and modeling also fall prey to this fallacy to some extent or even to a large extent but the fallacy is simply this that the computer is kind of a model of the world the world is like a computer that it runs along a similar kind of set of logics which are then capturable by the machine and simulatable and if you believe that, and then you kind of think that, yes, any problem can be solved by a computer or by the application of kind of computer-based technologies. And that just that just isn't the case. <laughs> it's just it's so far from the truth. Uh, the world is not like a computer. The world the world itself runs on entirely different logics and occasionally not on, and often not on logic at all. And so while the computer is good at modeling certain aspects of the world, when that computational metaphor takes over it you know in part confuses us it part abuses us and it partly just just completely fails altogether to be a useful way of thinking about the world it's one beautiful way of thinking about the world and i do say beautiful like i, I still despite everything i'm saying I'm, you know i'm a, a fan of computers it's what i've spent a huge chunk of my life working on and i think they're powerful tools in all kinds of ways but they must never be mistaken for how the world works or essentially you know put in charge or in front of you know how we actually address the situation of the world as it really is right they should really be understood as tools and merely tools and not something that is more real than the much more dynamic and complex world itself. And you started touching on this, but the last thread I want to weave into this portion of our conversation is you talk about the dangers of the scientific method relying so heavily on past data or data science as reference points. And one example might be climate change, throwing a curveball at sciences that relied on historical data of the Earth's weather patterns or atmosphere or chemistry and so forth. Another example you pointed out is artificial intelligence often trained through absorbing historical information and data from contexts 
where racism was rampant. Can you share more about these points that address the limitations and dangers of relying so heavily on data in this way, particularly for things that have greater socio-ecological implications? Because I find this to be really important in understanding the subjectivity of knowledge and this idea of reliability coming from the collection of just enough data points or more data points, as if those collections can really be divorced from the often skewed context that they emerge from. Yeah, I mean, I I think you've given two pretty solid examples there. I'm not sure I have a huge amount more to add, but like absolutely any system, any computational system you look into, you will find you know various biases within it because of the the place in which it was created. In the new book, I talk quite a lot about um the idea the metaphor not necessarily the reality but the metaphor of raising ai within like a particular worldview i think this is a useful way a way of thinking about it when it comes to any computer system whether you want to call it ai or not or even something quite dumb or really just anyone or anything you know we 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 are products of our environment and if you raise an ai for example within a the kind of hothouse of a large contemporary capitalist corporation, then you're going to get a kind of organism that sees the world through the lens of a large contemporary capitalist organization, which means it's going to be profit-seeking, it's going to be fairly uncaring about the consequence of his actions, and it's going to be blind to like the individual lives and the you know, the health of the people and, and other organisms around it. That's simply what it's going to be as a product of its, of the way it was raised, of the environment of its childhood, so to speak. And that's true of like pretty much anything that we make. Uh, it doesn't have to be a complex computer system. Like everything that we make that surrounds us is the product of those kind of influences as we are, as are all other beings on this planet. And so when you take like a narrow slice through that of of experience which is already kind of neutered and damaged essentially what's the word i'm looking for kind of reduced in in a violent way by being represented as data at all right it's already lost so much of what's important and then and then that data is such a narrow slice of experience the idea that you would get a something out of it which could be described as anything related to impartial is ridiculous Right, mm. you know, we barely expect that of of many humans. Uh, hopefully, we expect it of none. But we 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 have unfortunately political systems and indeed kind of all kinds of financial systems, community systems that tend to convey that onto people, and that's already bad enough. When you start to to give that kind of idea, possible idea of some kind of neutral point of view or neutral subjectivity onto onto non-humans, then you're really making a kind of huge mistake. Yeah. And when you share that everything essentially is sort of raised by the context that we're in, it reminds me of when you said before that we could understand corporations essentially to be artificial intelligence. So I guess to that point, what are the traits that you would typically attribute to artificial intelligence and how it acts and interacts with the world in much more limiting ways? And I would just love to hear you talk more about this provocative thought of recognizing corporations as artificial intelligence in a form. Yeah, well, no, I mean, that's just a thought about the fact that, I'll be honest, I mean, AI is is just not that interesting, really. Mm-hmm. Actually existing AI is not that interesting, right? Because actually existing AI is nothing of the kind. It's just a bunch of like really, really powerful computers 
what's kind of interesting is what it's doing and what's kind of interesting to me is why we have this cultural fascination with this thing that we call ai like why as a species we are so obsessed with this idea of of an intelligent machine now that's that to me is what's what seems to be so that's what ai is is perhaps for and maybe we'll get to that in a minute mm. but the, the 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 point about the ai as 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 corporation or corporation as AI is just to make the point that like our definition of AI is both quite vague, but also lacking in that, that it's useful to point to things that already exist in the world that are forms of non-human intelligence. And corporations are a very good example of this. Corporations can act in the world, right? They are assemblages, uh, mostly composed of other people or people in general, but also composed of kind of laws and various rights that allow them to take in information about the world and to to act on the world. They have sensors and effectors, they're called. They often have legal personhood, right? Corporations have speech. They can own bank accounts. They can own land. Uh, they can do all these things that a being, a human being in this case, can often do, right? And they have their own ways of reacting. You know, they respond to share prices by acting in certain ways, right? So that's one of their senses. They respond to lawsuits. They respond to like fluctuations in price of goods and so on and so forth, right? So they are, they act in ways that intelligent beings, as we consider them, act in response to the world. But it's really, to pointing that out for me is, is really both a way of kind of slightly deflating the notion of AI to say that like, you know, all the... You can talk about AI in, in many ways, and most of them, as I say, not really that interesting. But also to point out that the current thing that we call AI, the one that gets touted all the time, the one you hear about in the news, is one of these forms of corporate AI, right? Because it's being built by huge corporations. And mm -hmm. therefore, it's going to have all of these qualities. Uh, it's going to have all of these deeply capitalist, avaristic kind of qualities to it, because that's the lineage it comes from. And that's, you know, a useful way of framing it. And it's also useful way of starting a conversation about kind of what else that intelligence might look like, if it wasn't wholly, you know, subsumed by capital. Right. And it is often troubling for me to think about how a corporation or corporations often make decisions that even individual humans who make up that corporation might not even make if they were in the same shoes, just because they might be guided by different incentives and moralities. And this might be getting more to the heart of the more interesting questions to do with artificial intelligence. But I think a lot of people have a reasonable level of fear and others have great excitement for it, maybe due to their hopes and dreams for it's being able to far surpass human capabilities and intelligence. And to this, you raise a very foundational question of where does the impulse to kind of lock ourselves out from this domain come from? So like when AI reaches levels beyond human comprehension and abilities to personally engage, which seems to be the goal or fascination with AI, we have to ask why we even have desires to build things that are going to become increasingly exclusionary of what we can engage in in meaningful ways. And yet still maybe framing it in this way is human exceptionalist and how it implies that we should be expected to only nurture what we can understand and intelligence is that we can relate to. But I'm sure we'll dive into all of this next with your ways of being book. But just what comes up for you here as these things go through your mind? The point about fear is is a is a really good one. I think you know one of the one of the fascinating things about about the contemporary wave of AI is it's you know we're all scared of giant killer robots 
which is kind of mostly what we think of when we think of AI, and for good reason, right? Because because giant killer robots are scary. Uh, but what's, what's what's particularly noticeable is the number of people who are who are like directly working on this, right? The heads of like the big corporations that are betting on this, like senior people at Google and Microsoft, who go on the record and say like AI is the single biggest threat to humanity, mm. and who are actually <laughs> actually working on it at the same time. Mm. Um, I think they're both. I think they're wrong. I think capitalism is the single greatest threat to humanity. But that, of course, that's because they can't tell the difference between the AI they're building and capitalism. Or rather, they, they, they think there is a difference. And we would, I would argue otherwise. But also, I think it, it points to this, this kind of power, this fear of other intelligence in general. It points essentially to the deeply destabilizing idea that human intelligence might not be the only game in town. Because these people... The people who say things like this, who work within, you know, who are very, who, the billionaires, let's say, who say this, they're used to a system of exceptionalism in which they are the exception. And by whatever their leap of logic is, they, in a very small minority, are justified in being richer and more powerful than everyone else, probably because they think they're smarter. And so the idea that something else might be smarter, that something else might supplant them, is of course tied to the idea that something might happen to them that's been happening to all the other stupid poor people all this time, right? It's just that they think AI will do to them what they've been doing to everyone else all of this time. And so, of course, they're terrified of it. But it speaks to a, a fear that this state of exceptionalism, of human exceptionalism, might come to an end. And that is scary if only, you know, large corporations and a couple of governments are building these AIs. But it's not if you have a broader idea of intelligence. If you know... In fact, that we've always been surrounded by intelligences, many of which surpass us in all kinds of ways, and that that doesn't have to be a threatening thing, that right. we can actually have relationships with non-human intelligences that are meaningful and full of care, even if most of us within the kind of dominant paradigm have forgotten that. Yeah, well, to this point, Ways of Being is your more recent book in which you pose this question of what intelligence even means and whether we ought to be so human righteous as to only recognize humans as having intelligence. As an invitation to expand who or what we understand to be intelligent, what are some examples of intelligence from other organisms you've come across that have really fascinated you that you think could really humble our human intelligence in some ways, and even so-called artificial intelligence. What are some of these findings that surprised you or fascinated you that we could ground ourselves in? Yeah, I mean, I do, I just make it clear at the start that it's like already, it's important not to sort of, I think, approach this as being like, even though I will happily say that there's various kinds of intelligence that may surpass human intelligence in these narrow domains, like, it's really important I think not to start it from a position of saying like this one is better at this thing than the other one mm -hmm. right and not to like to go into this being like already trying to create another hierarchy because that's essentially what our definition historical and most kind of popular definition of intelligence is always based on it's always based on this notion of hierarchy and of course it has humans at the top because that's how it works so over the last you know 100 or so years we have moved again in, in the kind of West and within dominant science, move from a position of basically considering all non-humans to be brutes or, or robots or kind of mechanisms to a position of recognizing certain abilities of non-humans in all kinds of interesting ways. But those have always been performed by doing these kind of tests from the human perspective. 
right? So, um, you know, a really classic example of this is is the mirror test. Uh, the mirror test is a test that's been used since the 1970s within kind of animal studies to try and figure out if a if a non-human animal has what's called um, like self-awareness. It recognizes itself as an individual distinct from the world. Now, for humans, that's a really important ability. We think it's one of the things that really marks us out as being special, right? Is that we see ourselves as individuals. We're not just machines going about our business in the world with no like relationship to what to another or to other things. We are we are singular individuals, and we like we like to make a lot of a lot of big deal of that. And so, one of the ways that that gets tested for is this thing called the mirror test, where various animals in deeply unnatural situations are kind of you know, mirrors are placed in front of them. Usually uh, the technique is to sedate them in some way and mark their faces. So they might give it a mark on their forehead and then they'll examine in front of the mirror to see if they like touch the the mark. Like this really crude way of seeing like, do they understand that's a mirror and do they understand that it's them that they see in it? And like the ways in which different creatures respond to this are kind of fascinating. You know, the first tests were done on various apes because we all know that apes are like us and therefore they should kind of be intelligent. And you get a few differing results. And gradually over time, this test has been done in all kinds of different animals. There was a really great article that came out just the other day where they've been trying to do it on penguins. They put loads of mirrors like out on the tundra uh, in Antarctica, like out on the ice, and kind of watched whether the penguins looked inside. It looked in them when they came past. They're not really sure. Um, basically, this whole thing collapses once you start to get into kind of cultural differences with various creatures. So, like once you get a certain distance from humans down the ape line. Various monkeys don't don't pass the mirror test, but they seem to like pay attention to the mirrors in different ways. Uh, macaque monkeys, for example, uh, do a lot of grooming in the mirrors, but they don't touch the marks, right? And like one possible explanation for that, though it's possible we won't know, is that for macaques, like faces just aren't that important, right? Butts are important, to be clear. That's their main kind of <laughs> signaling method to one another. And so, of course, that's what they look at in the mirror. It actually turns out that um, humans pass this test not evenly across human cultures. So in fact, like there's not even a universality of human experience to this test. You know, there's there's multiple ways that humans respond to this test. And so of course there's multiple ways uh, animals do it. Um famously um attempts to get dolphins to pass the mirror test were foiled for many years because the dolphins absolutely refused to like respond in any expected way but did have sex in front of the mirrors all the time. Uh so you know there's there's just no there's not any single stable apparatus that we could set up in order to put the way we think about the world on a kind of measurable parity with other creatures. But all of the examples I've given, and many, many more that I could give, all point to the fact that there are incredible types of thinking going on. And what's important to think about in these types of thinking is that they are the two kind of things that I, that I came to to think about a lot, which are that they're embodied and that they're relational. What I mean by that is that um, the types of intelligence that any kind of being has is a result of its embodiment and its experience, the kind of body that it has or its enfleshment, right? The, the classic example of this is um, is kind of tool use tests. There was a, a famous example of the um, Gibbons uh, who for years refused to pass a particular test which involved using a stick to get a treat. And as a result, like scientists just thought they weren't very intelligent. 
gibbons were classed as being more stupid than a bunch of other apes because they wouldn't use a stick to get a treat in the same way that a bunch of other apes would. Uh, until one day someone redesigned the experiment and they hung the sticks from the top of the gibbons enclosure and the gibbons immediately grabbed the sticks, kind of hooked the treats and had a little snack. And what was happening there is that, you know, one way of understanding it again, potentially, is that gibbons are brachiators. They live up in the trees. And so they have an, an awareness, a thoughtfulness about the world that looks up more than down. Right? And they have bodies that are more adapted to grasping certain things. And all these th things play into the way that they do intelligence. Right? For science, you know, the gibbon only became intelligent in that moment when it passed this test because we arranged it in this particular way. But of course, they were intelligent all along. It was just we needed, we needed the apparatus to see their intelligence for ourselves. So intelligence is embodied in these particular ways for all different types of beings some much more radically different to us than apes. And secondly, you know, I think the, the other really important quality of intelligence I think about a lot is that it's relational. Like it comes out of a relationship. It's not a thing that only exists within the head or the body. Like IQ tests, completely meaningless, right? Because, because what they're measuring is only what's going on inside a mind. Whereas intelligence is something that arises in relationship to the world around us and can, in fact, arise in relationship to pretty much anything. And when it does, it's a mutual quality. So our intelligence is not a singular quality. Our intelligence is, is a measure of our relationship with other beings. Uh, and, and that exists between all other kinds of beings as well. Yeah. We've explored this idea of, of how knowledge is relational on the show before. So the similar idea that intelligence should also be seen and recognized as being relational that really resonates for us here and so nice what was the context of that i think we were talking about the passing down of knowledge through orators for a lot of indigenous cultures because oral storytelling isn't valued as much as written text in the dominant culture in the dominant western mm -hmm. culture and so yeah i've spoken to people who talked about how knowledge should be understood as relational you know when communities come together and share stories, a lot of that knowledge is allowed to remain fluid and adaptable and ever evolving and changing because the community is constantly changing. The times are constantly changing. The landscapes are constantly changing. So yeah, just really valuing the idea of freeing knowledge from being kind of calcified and fixed. Yeah, what a, what a beautiful illustration. I mean, we could, we, we could have used it in the, the discussion of technology earlier. Definitely. And so I guess with all of this coming together, maybe this isn't just a call to redefine intelligence or simply expand or shift its meaning and measures within the same underlying worldview, but really an invitation to undefine intelligence altogether. Is that kind of the key essence here and the underlying message? Yeah, I mean, I set out to, to write and think about intelligence as my way in to thinking with other beings. Mm -hmm. And that as my starting point, was conditioned by my background in technology, my background in the dominant science, by the received ideas I had about intelligence. And I learned a lot through that thinking and writing process that, you know, on the one hand, made me rethink my definition of intelligence and try to reframe it in certain ways but also to think that you know maybe intelligence is just not the most important quality mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be it certainly shouldn't be the thing that we use to decide much else it's one kind of interesting thing that's in play here uh, it may allow us through rethinking it 
to have different relationships but it was you know it's it's definitely gone down in my estimation let's say mm. as being the the kind of most important or even a, a particularly important quality of forming the basis of relationships right well we're coming to the end of our main conversation here and i want to underscore this piece from your writing, you shared the awareness of historic injustice is crucial to understanding the dangers of the mindless implementation of new technologies that uncritically ingest yesterday's mistakes. We will not solve the problems of the present with the tools of the past, end quote. With this, I would love for you to close off our main discussion here by sharing more about your remark that you are opposed to solutions or solutionism and what additional offerings or questions can we continue to think through to guide us towards collective liberation and alternative futures? Yeah, I mean, my, my opposition to solutionism really comes out of out of the technological practice we discussed earlier because anything that emphasizes single universal solutions is is going to be relying upon those kind of calcified processes that you described so well it's going to take a, a a fixed past and probably you know fragmentary understanding of the world and try to fix something that it barely understands and that's clearly not not the way to do it we don't there's no end point to the processes that we find ourselves in i think that's the you know that's also the greatest problem with that view of, of of solutioning is that imagines some fixed future point in which all these things are solved and the world is perfect and made whole again. That's not going to happen either. We live within a kind of constant process of an unfolding and becoming and becoming together in which there's no no fixed end point that we're ever going to reach. We just have to move ever more into ever better relationships with one another, but those are going to keep changing and unfolding. So rather than thinking about solutions we have to think about processes or as you know my one of my personal heroes Aldous Huxley has put it kind of uh, means not ends you know we have we have some of the means to think about that and we but if we put relationships at the heart of our thinking rather than rather than you know fixed ideas or supposed utopias those kind of solutionary points at the end of time then we then we can start to shift our relationships and for me you know increasingly that's that comes from having better relationships, certainly in the context of, of you know, planetary relationships with the world around us. It's, it's very obvious that the entire basis of our relationship with the planet as it currently exists is fundamentally flawed. And that comes out not, you know, that, that's not going to be shifted by anything resembling a technology uh, of any kind of like tweak to the capitalist ways in which we live at present. It will only be changed by a complete and utter philosophical shift in the way that we relate to the earth. Because it, you know, it doesn't matter if you think a, a field is, um, you know, should be dug up for oil, or if you think that field should be fenced off and protected and preserved, if your underlying mindset is still that that field belongs to humans to make decisions about without the input of other beings. There needs to be a fundamental shift in the way that we relate to the planet and all the its other inhabitants in order to even think about making the kind of decisions that put us into better relationships into the future. Um, that, for me, is you know, has been the great realization of doing this kind of work. It has nothing to do really with intelligence and everything to do with with paying attention, uh, listening, opening oneself to the world around us, and um, trying to work with everyone else in order to. Um, begin to mitigate and start to move towards a future beyond the the fairly horrific effects of climate change that we see happening right now. Time
What has been one of the most impactful books that you've read or publications you follow? I, I tend to think very immediately about li literally like the last things that I read because I read so much. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not going to look for like the, the most amazing thing I've ever read. But I like I'll mention two books that I've just really enjoyed lately. Uh, and I've already forgotten the name of the first author but his book is called imperial mud it's a really extraordinary history of the enclosure of the fenlands in in britain yeah from the kind of 15th up until the 19th centuries which is the kind of really solidified for me an understanding of the relationship between environmental crimes and the crimes of colonialism and imperialism because this was a kind of period just before the british empire started on its kind of global imperial conquest in which it prototype those processes at home uh, subduing huge areas of common land that were also areas of incredible biodiversity and in which you saw both humans and and the other beings that we share that they shared that land with being subsumed by these common kind of acquisitive processes and it's an incredible work of history that really allowed me to to put those things into 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 conversation to go back a little further in ways that i understood before and the other book that i'm enjoying at the moment is um sabrina imbler's uh my life in sea creatures it's called in the uk but it has a different title I think it's something like how far the light reaches in the US. But anyway, Sabrina Imbler's work, she's an extraordinarily brilliant kind of science communicator, environmental journalist. And this book is talking about personal history and particularly queer history in relationship to uh, marine organisms. And I just, I love it and I recommend it highly. Mm, thank you so much. I just looked it up really quickly. Imperial Mud is by James Boyce. And we'll have both of these books linked in our show notes as well. Thank you. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? I think the two the, the two quotes. Oh no, and they're, they're both by they're both by old white men. But that's that's my education. I'm afraid I should think of other ones. But the two that immediately pop into my head, are, um, the one that I mentioned earlier, Aldous Huxley's "Means Not Ends." You know, the constant insistence on the way in which we go about our lives every day matters and doesn't just matter because it's important in the moment because it defines the place that we will get to and the only way to 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 get to where we might want to get to is act in the present in the everyday how we would like the world to be and the other one is really <laughs> i've been thinking quite a lot about emerson and thoreau uh recently and so uh, ralph Waldo emerson's little pithy um, consistency as the hobgoblin of small minds, I think has been written on one notebook or another since I was about 12, and it will have to do as well. Mm. And what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment? Uh, the the world around me, I moved to a, um, I moved kind of by accident to a small island in the Mediterranean mm. about three years ago, just before COVID hit, which obviously shaped what happened immediately afterwards quite strongly. And, you know, I lived all my life inside inside large cities, 35 years in London, another five years in Athens, and stretches in a few other kind of mega cities along the way. And the last couple of years, I've been lucky enough to have both the time and the surroundings to pay a bit more attention to, mm. you know, to the creatures who've always been there, and I hadn't even noticed. And every day is a source of utter wonder when I meet some new being who has something to teach me. And I couldn't even imagine thinking or saying those words until a couple of years ago. Uh, and so I, I, I find myself incredibly lucky 
to be in the place that I am surrounded by so many teachers and extraordinary extraordinary beings uh, who it turns out are there waiting to talk to you if you just shut up and listen This conversation was made possible through the direct support of our listeners like you. To receive my personal reflections on these conversations, get access to our bonus live podcasts and gatherings, and support our show to continue, join us on Patreon today at greendreamer.com support. As a small independent show, we also greatly appreciate your five-star reviews and whenever you get the chance to share your favorite episodes. Our song feature today is Lullaby by Ruby Madeer. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you soon in the next episode.